Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And as usual, if you've got questions that come up while you're reading, while you're listening, uh, or just in the random midnight moments where you are losing sleep about what the Bible says, we would love to help field those questions. We're not experts by any means, but we do take time to to really think through uh, how to biblically respond to those questions. So send them in. Uh, And there's two ways that you can do that. One is an email. Uh, The email address to send the message to is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question, or you can direct message uh, the Grove Church on Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, uh, and we'd love for you to DM us those questions as well. There you go. All right. Well, listeners, for the the second week in a row, I must open up with an... An apology, an act of repentance. This is actually an offensive one to me, so he's actually more apologizing to me than you guys. Dude, so last week, I don't know what happened, but in the notes, we were going through to chapter nine in the Bible reading plan, but for some reason in the notes, I put chapter five. And I even remember thinking to myself, oh, the song of Deborah and Barack isn't in this week's reading, but I guess I'll include it because it doesn't make sense to cut it off. Um, Really what I did is I cut off all of Gideon. So that is... If you don't know this, Gideon is my son. And he was crying. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. He was he is, I do have a son named Gideon, but um, it's funny you told me this week. I didn't even pick up on it. So. Oh, man. So sorry, listeners. Um, and normally I would, like we would just kind of recap it all, but this week's actually pretty, it's pretty jam-packed. And so we're going to kind of have to just go spark notes on Gideon. And I'm sorry. So yeah, we've done. It's, it's a remarkable story. It really is. Uh, and if you ever want a more modernized take on the the narrative of the story, there's a book called... Gid the Kid and the Black Bean Bandits. So it actually also shares the story of Gideon. Also, if you want to hear us talk about Gideon more, we did a character study on Gideon last year, the year before. So if you just, you know, if you search Gideon, let's read the Bible, it'll be there somewhere. But sorry, listeners. So spark notes, really quick. Gideon, uh, he is kind of, he's one of the more naturally cowardly judges, at least in the beginning. (laughs) Uh, We find out that... uh, The angel of the Lord finds him hiding in a threshing floor. Um, He says... Greetings, mighty warrior, um, which I think most people interpret as like a prophetic um, utterance of what Gideon could be. I like to interpret it as God being sarcastic in that moment. So just like as it it's basically probably has a both, the tone of both. Yeah. I, I like to imagine Gideon's just like hands over his head going down and the angel comes up and is like, oh, hey, mighty warrior, how's it going? Uh, but that would not be the end of Gideon's story. He is raised up to be one of the judges. We get the famous story where he asked God for a sign for first a wet fleece and dry, grand, dry land and then the opposite way. Uh, eventually he gets an army and he's going to go fight the Midianites. This army gets whittled down from 30,000 to 10,000. I should have written that down, but it gets whittled down once. I want to say smaller than that. I thought it was 10,000 to something else, and then from 10 to 5, then 5 to 300. Is that what it is? So, I, something along those lines. It's not a significant number. Like the, it, final, the final number is 300, so eat your heart out, Leonidas, and then Gideon <laughs> takes those guys. Uh, it is clearly, again, like so many of the victories in Judges, it is 100% a miracle. It is Yahweh's yeah. deliverance. Uh, the Midianites are confused. They end up basically running away and killing themselves. Um, they, they are routed by the Israelites. Gideon becomes judge. Um, but that is also not the end of the story of Gideon. Gideon is also one of the, uh, is he, he's one of the first judges to really kind of biff it at the end. And so I'm trying That's to think true. of the other one. Yeah. The other ones kind of, they hold out strong, even Barack. 
starts off not great, but, you know, he rises to the yeah, occasion. He starts with the bar low and then rises. And Gideon starts with the low bar, goes high, then comes down. Yeah. So one... And I say low bar because of the hiding in a pit. So. Oh, man. And so, yeah, basically, he just has a fall. He he struggles with um, some idols. I put down some idols and some concubines. So pretty much the standard sin for the day. <laughs> like, that's kind of the two big things that the Israelites seem to struggle with. Um, Gideon has over 70 sons. So that's remarkable. Um, yeah, well, yeah, you know, it's uh, you have enough concubines and it's it's achievable, it's I suppose. Easy. Yeah, uh, and so he's also, also, if you're confused when you see, um, so we're going to meet Abimelech, is the person we're talking about here. He's described as Jerubbabel's son, which is one of the names given to Gideon, so that's why they're used interchangeably there. Uh, and I mean, just talk about your embarrassing sons. So Abimelech, <laughs> uh, he decides he wants to be king of Shechem, but you know, he's one of 70 sons and I hate to, you know, you hate to break it to the guy, but when you're one of 70, your odds of being king are pretty, they're pretty low, all things considered. Um, so he kills them all. He decides to, you know, I'm going to kill all my brothers, except Jotham. He escapes. That's the youngest of Gideon's sons. So, you know, good for Jotham. So he kills- Well, at that point, Abimelech is the oldest, so that he would be the one to inherit the throne. True. Yeah. So oh. he kills, I guess, I don't- yeah, I think there's 70 total. So he kills 68 sons, and then the 69th makes it out, and then Abimelech's the last one standing. So there you go. Uh, he becomes king of Shechem, and they here's the deal: Abimelech and Shechem <laughs> they kind of they kind of deserve each other. So I literally just read that sentence in the notes, and I couldn't help but laugh. We get um, they deserve in, each other in Judges chapter nine, starting at verse 22. It says Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years, so he didn't make it out very long. Uh, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Oh man, that's what a bummer. You reap what you sow. Yeah. That violence was done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them and the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. So Abimelech becomes king and the people of Shechem are just, you know, there's a bunch of thieves. Like they're they're not they're not very cool. Again, Abimelech, terrible person. The people of Shechem. I mean, you don't want to make blanket statements, but it seems like overwhelmingly terrible people. The people of Shechem. So there you go. Uh, he ends up attacking Abimelech. Ends up attacking and destroying Shechem, and then so he destroys his own city that he rules <laughs> over. So you know that is. And here's the deal. As a king, that's that's like rule number one. You don't destroy your own city. Um, and he is later killed while sieging Thebes and then, or Thebes, I guess maybe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and then to continue the theme of Deborah and Jael from last week, uh, a lady is the one. She takes a millstone and she uh, tosses it over the wall. She hits Abimelech and it says it crushes her head, uh, his head, his sorry, head, not yeah. her head, um, which A, you know, that takes that takes some strength. That is not a that's not an easy thing to toss down. Um, B, it's I feel like that's one of those really violent, gory details of the Bible that we just kind of skip past. But like, oh, that's really that's really gross. Like just imagining that happening. Um, but honestly, here's the deal. I don't have any sympathy for Abimelech. That guy was <laughs> that guy was a real piece of work. So, and that's uh that's him. I don't. He's not a judge. So he's just kind of a uh, a leader of Israel. We'll call him. Yeah, he's a, he's a side note of stupidity. Oh man, and that and, and that was one of Gideon's sons. Yeah, That's come on. Sad. So, well, uh, then, fun fact about Gideon though: ooh. the name means destroyer of high places. So, if you're reading the story of Gideon and you read Valiant Warrior, Mighty Warrior, whatever translation, it doesn't mean that the name Gideon means <laughs> Mighty Warrior. Just so you know, uh, but it means destroyer of high places, so. which is what Gideon he does. It's does. A, it's how he starts off 
being obedient to call God, he tears down a pole, an Asherah pole. Yeah. So anyways, and I feel like the, it's the, a great story. The story of Gideon and um, Abimelech is really, it's almost a microcosm of the story of Judges where you have, Absolutely. and you can't even call Gideon necessarily, he's, he doesn't make it all the way through, but at least like a triumph, Yahweh's deliverance, and then within a generation... Within a lifetime, he falls, but within yeah. a generation, all of a sudden you get Abimelech who's just, I mean, he's not the worst, but he's, I mean, he's, he's in that bottom tier of leaders. That's for sure. So yep, agreed. Next up, we get a couple more guys who get the footnote treatment. So this is Tola and Jair. It says, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, which is a great Dodo. name. Dodo. Uh, a man of Issachar. Hey, Cool. I mean, I always like it when the smaller tribes that don't get mentioned much get a they judge. Get yeah, is Issachar. Good Street job. Credit. Uh, and he lived at Shamir, the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel for 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. We're not told really any, you know. No, That's it. Yeah, no miracles. He just kind of, he arose and saved Israel somehow. Thank you, Tola. Yep. Uh, after him arose Jair, the Gileadite. Oh, Gilead's going to come up later. Who judged Israel for 22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 <laughs> cities. Wow. <laughs> it sounds like the each cat had seven kittens. Each hey, kitten had seven Consistent. Mice. The family is consistent. Oh, man. And they're called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kamon. So, all right, cool. Anyway, uh, after the death of Jair, we are told that the people of Israel decide to stop worshiping Yahweh again. Surprise. What? Uh, this time, they turn to a whole host of gods, including, but probably not limited to, the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, uh, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. So, boy, they well, are- Well done, I guess. Like, you know, if you're going to go <laughs> if you're gonna go for it, I guess- If you're going to you... rebel against God, you might as well rebel- Every other God. To be clear, that is not actual advice, listeners. No, you don't not do it. Rebel against God. Uh, they learn cry. from the, the Book of Judges, please. Oh, learn from goodness. the Book of Judges. Um, this is also so they cry out to God for deliverance. And remember, this has been a whole cycle that the people Yahweh delivers His people. This is starting back in Egypt, and they reject Him, and then they cry out for deliverance. And he delivers them again in the Book of Judges. We see it happen even more and more. Um, and so finally, and here's the deal: I don't blame Him for one second. God's a little tired of this. And so in Judges 10, starting in verse 10, it says this, uh, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you, fact check, true, uh, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals and the other ones, but fine, don't mention that. Uh, and the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites who oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I saved you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Okay. God, were you a little mad oh, at that point? I, I just, I love, <laughs> I love verse 14. I can't tell. Go cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. It's just, oh yeah, it's just, it's poetic. There's so many it's applicable transliterations to that for us today. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Whatever you run to. That's crazy. Let that save you. Yeah, I think God's a little bit upset. But yeah. then the crazy thing is that verse 16. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. Yeah. Like that's a hopeful term. Like he, but still like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's clear that 
the rejection of God is not permanent, yeah. and it's never permanent, even in the the final one. And I I shouldn't say final one, but in the the famous one at the end of Kings and Chronicles, where Jerusalem is destroyed and the people are exiled, even then they are brought back yeah. at one point. Yeah, yeah. And so Yahweh forgives, uh, but he's he's fed up with it. And this is I, I believe it's the first time in Judges that we see the people cry out, and it's not instant. He's like, uh, you know what, you're gonna wait a little bit for this one. You're in timeout. <laughs> And and kudos to this generation is the repentance is the repentance is genuine. It's not like a, please deliver us and then God says no and they're like okay well fine we're going to go back to the other gods. They actually do stick with uh, no we're only going to worship Yahweh. Yep. Do whatever is right in your sight. So there you go. Uh, next up we get Jephthah, who is one of the more he's one of the more interesting uh, characters. He is the son of Gilead, and he's also from the land of Gilead. So there's a little bit of a double thing there. Uh, He was the son of a prostitute. So Gilead's legitimate sons drove him out. And so he lives the life of a bandit for a while, um, but he is asked to lead the people against the Ammonites. Interestingly, Yahweh does not raise up Jephthah as judge, but rather he is chosen by the people. Um, And that's not to say that Yahweh doesn't empower Jephthah, but it's... uh, we are told specifically not that, and then God raised up Jephthah. It's that the people went to Jephthah and asked him for deliverance. Uh, we are told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he is able to defeat the Ammonites through Yahweh. He vows to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house, which is a sign of his carelessness, um, and his daughter comes out first. So he vows, like, thank you for this victory. Um, whatever comes out of my house first, I will sacrifice it. I've heard it. And here, here, I think there's two ways you could interpret this. I think you could interpret that as he's just expecting an animal to come out of his house. I think the other thing that you could say is, and again, we have to kind of get our, um, not just our modern reading glasses off, but yeah. we also have to take off the glasses of like century later Jews. Um, this is very much like this very much could be, yeah, whatever person comes out, I'll sacrifice him, like expecting him to be a servant and, and him being willing to engage in human sacrifice. Uh, I would not put that... 100% past Jephthah here. Yeah. So, and that, and to be clear, that's not explicitly said. I think there's two very viable yeah. ways to, yeah. So. Well, I think, I think the thing, the beauty of the beauty, if I can say it that way, the story of Jephthah is, is just, it, it reveals God's ability, reveals God's sovereignty to deliver his people. And, and we can, I mean, it's the, it's the old saying that if God's blessing it, then it must be right. No, that's not always true, but God, God, God's purposes prevail. Uh, and even in the Old Testament, God's intention was to deliver his people. Uh, and and sometimes he did things that were unorthodox from our perspective, but at the end of the day, his thoughts are higher, his ways are higher. So it's, it's one of those things that like God, God still gets the glory here. And Jephthah was not the, the most <laughs> astute individual. He was not the most um, uh, God-fearing man. He was, he was the, 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 the person to be used for the time that the, the that was going on. So um, it is interesting for sure. To, I mean, the fact that God does not raise him up, but he, that he is still empowered and still brings uh, salvation to the people in that time. Um, but it is, it's, it's who, <laughs> who would do that? Yeah. It's, so well, and, make that vow. Like that's a careless thing. Like I, I, I appreciate the way that you put it. Like he was, this shows his carelessness. At, at, yeah. At best it's careless. And I kind of want to believe that that's what it was that like, but I also think like, so Oh, so we'll read, let's read the scripture really quick and then we'll kind of get back to it. So 
In Judges chapter 11, it says, And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what you what has gone out of your mouth, and now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity and my I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed and she and her companions and they wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. And he had, she had never known a man and became, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite four days a year. So, Here's, I'm going to tell you, like, I, here's what I hope happened. I really hope that Jephthah was careless, expecting it to be an animal. His daughter came out. And when it says that he did to her, according to what he had vowed, it means that he committed her to essentially perpetual virginity. So she became I, I, a nun is kind of a weird way of saying it, but basically, yeah, she never has children. Um, and she lives that kind of life in servitude to God. Um, but it, it is also very easily implied. And I think probably what happens that he actually like offers up his daughter as a human sacrifice. Um, and so I think what it should, and w- what's really interesting with Jephthah too, is he clearly understands some things about God. Like he understands that, no, I've made this vow to Yahweh. Like this mm-hmm. is an important thing. Um, and yet he has this complete disconnect of he would engage in child sacrifice, which is clearly against like, like, re- like, you know, read the law. <laughs> like that yeah. is very much against the law of Moses that was handed down. Okay. According to the rules of Israel, what, what Jephthah would do here is a sin. And so we're not told explicitly exactly what happens, but yeah. And I also put this in the notes and it's going to, this is going to really come in later. Um, it's just a reminder that things in the Bible when they are described, it does not mean that they are prescribed. Yes, and which what is that, really good. And what that means is that um, in a lot of the books, they're telling you things that are happened, the things that happened, but they don't necessarily say, oh my gosh, this is a terrible thing. So it doesn't mean go do those things. It mm-hmm. just means this is what happened. And again, well- And it also does not mean that God absolutely approves of it. Yeah, exactly. And we've got to be very careful with that. And 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 that that is so key because, I mean, in my own humanity, and my own modern day thinking is like, this is so not even okay. How could God approve of that? It doesn't mean that God approved of it. And so we don't right. we don't have that verification saying God approved of Jephthah's fulfillment of his vow to, to Yahweh. Like we don't have that. Um, and but at the end of the day, this is a descriptive series of events that the scripture is telling us that we we have to understand from that context, not from a go and do this likewise context. Yep. Context. Well, after this, we get uh, some more footnote judges. So we get <laughs> Ibzan of Bethlehem. Or sorry, I'm actually going to read the scripture. So it's Judges chapter 12. It says, after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan and 30 daughters he brought from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel for seven years. So, um, I mean... I feel like it's safe to say that guy had some concubines. Uh, then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite. Hey, cool, Zebulon. Uh, judged Israel, and he judged Israel for 10 years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. 
After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Piriathalite, Pir, Piratha, Pirathanite, man, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. Hey, hey shout, out to the, shout out to the grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. Hey. They each had a donkey. Cool, man. I mean, I don't know. Was it the custom in Israel to share donkeys at this point? Like, where's it? I don't know. Or it might be donkeys are like cars today. Maybe. Every 16-year-old. Potentially has a car. You Not get a really donkey. Every, but you, you get a donkey. You get a donkey. And you get a donkey. I should have looked that up because it is interesting how like that's just a... It's a big deal. Yeah. They, they have the exact amount of It made the book, guys. It made the book. Oh, man. And he judged Israel for eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Piriathalite, died and was buried at uh, Pirathalon in the land of... <laughs> yeah, I said... I Sorry, I'm just laughing at Evan. Pirathon. In the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Here's the deal, listeners. We're done talking about that place. So let's move on. Hey, can you say Deuteronomy real quick? Deuter- no, I'm just kidding. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. <laughs> it's the, as the end, second or first. I hate my life. Um, <laughs> Sorry, off track. <laughs> just, yeah, when we get to the... That's why I'm not doing any of the Gospels. You're going to be doing all the Garden of Gethsemane <laughs> stuff. Uh, next up, we get Samson. He's probably the most famous judge, I would argue. So, I mean, maybe Gideon, but not Gideon's not no, famous Samson, Samson. Samson's more well-known than yeah. Gideon, absolutely. All right. Well, next up, uh, Samson's here. We are told that an angel appears to the wife of Manoah of Dan. Hey, speaking of tribes that don't... Well, actually, you know what? You don't deserve this, Dan. We'll get to that here in a little bit. But Dan... <laughs> Shots fired. Dan sucks. Uh, and to be clear, not if, if your name is Dan. Yeah, if your name is Dan, Dan, if your name is Dan, I'm sure you're great. But we'll see what we'll see what happens with Dan here in a couple generations. Dan-o, but for now, animal, <laughs> Dan the man. But for now, we're talking about uh, Samson. Uh, the angel tells her that even though she is barren, she will give birth to a son, and that he must take the Nazarite vow. Uh, this is very. This is not Nazareth or Nazarenes. Mm. The Nazarite vow is something that's first introduced in number six, and there are rules laid out laid out for the people. Um, and yeah, men or women could be Nazarites. This was not a. Uh, only man thing, uh, and they want they can take a special vow to Yahweh, and they have a bunch of different rules among them. And the famous one for the purposes of this story is that they can never cut their hair. It says a mm-hmm. razor must never touch your hair. Yeah, they're not supposed to touch wine, anything that grows from a vine. They're not supposed to touch, right. be around anything dead. Um, which those are all imperative to understand, or important to understand in light of Samson's story as you read through it. Yep. Because you're going to see it's not just the hair issue; it's also the other th- parts of a Nazarite vow that he broke. Yeah, he's he yeah he's a deeply flawed man, uh, but yep. Yahweh uses him to accomplish great things. Um, and we see that his I, I, I ah, which which book was it? I can't, I wish I could remember, but one of the books I was reading in prep for this. Um, I'm going to give credit to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Dictionary, so <laughs> maybe it was them. Uh, but it said that hashtag I hope. If not, it was the essence of the Old Testament. Um, uh, but, or the ASV study Bible, one of the three. Anyway, uh, it says that Samson's greatest flaw is his passion, um, mm. which is interesting because I always hear it like lust, which I think is definitely a, definitely a part of it. But I think if you wanted to broaden it out completely, it's that he gets swept up in passion. And so whether it's like getting angry and super violent or getting swept, swept, getting swept up uh, in love or lust, whatever you want to call that and making poor decisions that way, that's kind of Samson's, that's his deal. Uh, so he marries a Philistine woman uh, against the advice of his parents, which you know what? Great advice, parents. Like, isn't that also part of the Nazarite thing? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember either. If it's not, it should be. Uh, I, so after engaging in a riddle game, so he he's at this wedding feast and he tell, he bets basically the Philistine guests like, hey, guess this riddle and I'll give you, I think it's 30 pieces of linen clothing. And they get super mad about it. And so they go and they threaten, they threaten to kill his wife's family if she doesn't 
give them the answer. And so all this happens. Uh, he gets super mad about this and he kills all of them. Are they married? They, they are, yeah, I had to look this up because it's they, really they weird. They get married. They get married. I don't married. know why I always forget this part, but I always forget it. The reason you forget and the reason I forgot as well is because he leaves without her. And then yeah. later on in the story, he goes back and she's married to someone else. And, that, and that's where I thought it, it, there was like, engage, I want to marry that woman. But, and marriage was, was uh, about consensual sex, right? That's what, that's what defined a marriage. Right. That's how they consummated a marriage was that way. But um, I just couldn't remember. So yeah. yeah so he, he does actually get married, but they never actually live together as married. Because after, after the whole wedding feast thing, he just takes off, leaves her there. Yeah, because she gets manipulated and she gets threatened that her family's going to be killed by these Philistine men because they can't solve the riddle. She finds out the riddle's answer and then tells these men. Right. So yeah, it's a whole, you know, it's a whole cluster. Samson's life is a cluster. Again, let's just be honest. Again, Samson deeply flawed. Uh, after this, he kills a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. And so again, this is a miracle. <laughs> like yeah. some, this is, this is not like Samson's a great and mighty warrior. And it's um, not exaggerative. It's not in the sense to be this like dramatic, like exaggeration of Samson actually killing like 10 dudes, but like he literally kills a thousand people with yeah. a jawbone, which is ridiculous because if you yeah if, if the story was samson killed 10 men with a donkey's jawbone you'd be like wow that's impressive a thousand is like that's that's Wait, clearly what? that is clearly the spirit of An the lord of God, came yeah. upon samson uh eventually he meets delilah who is a philistine prostitute so he has a type uh and she tricks him <laughs> <laughs> oh man there's a, this is the famous story right that's the she, best thing he has a type he has a type apparently he likes he likes those philistine ladies uh he for the famous story of Samson, right, is that she tries to trick him into like, hey, what's the secret of your power? Because the Philistines want to take him out. Because, you know, he's been he's been a thorn in the side of the Philistines. He like, keeps lying. She'll bind him with ropes. The Philistines come in. He breaks them apart and he kills them all. And finally she's like, hey, why won't you tell me why I can't make you weak? And for some reason, like Sam, not for some reason, because he's swept up in passion, right? Because like she's clearly, she's clearly trying to kill you, Samson. Blinded or, by passion. Oh yeah. my gosh. Pun intended. So finally he tells her and in the middle of the night, she cuts his hair and then binds him. And then when he, when the Philistines rush in, he all of a sudden his the, the spirit of the Lord has left him. He now cannot do the great things that he was able to do. And I've heard it said this way. One of the saddest verses in the book of Judges is he did not know that the spirit of the Lord had left him <sighs> when he got his haircut. Yeah. That's because he real... didn't know. And he was blinded like that. I mean, I, I don't mean to be like punny or whatever, trying to be, put a pun in there. Right. But he absolutely like the passion. Mm -hmm provide or prevented him from seeing what was really happening. And the reason Aaron said, I don't want to be funny there is because his eyes are gouged out right after this. And yeah. so that's why, you know, and it's not funny. It's sad. Anyway. So his eyes are gouged out and he's put on parade in front of the Philistines as a trophy. Um, and he, but I, I, I do love that, you know, he's kind of the, um, he's, he's almost the anti Gideon where he starts off real shaky, um, but his last moment is his best moment as a judge of Israel. Um, he prays to Yahweh, and this is how his story ends. It says, now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So basically, he's become almost a court gesture. Um, just, and not, that's probably the wrong way to do it. He's become a trophy to essentially parade around. Oh, but around I think a court gesture is a great idea too, because he's, he's at their beck and call. He's yeah, there's their no, entertainment. There's like, no honor. Bring him out. Let him like, let him entertain us. Let him push the thing or whatever. Like there's, he's yeah. now, he's now that, that person. It says in verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned 
his weight against them. His right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't have imagined it any other way, but thanks for that detail. Like <laughs> he put his hands on he the pillars. He crisscrossed pillar. his arms. He yeah. Crisscrossed his arms. Here I was thinking he wrapped his arms around the pillars and then put them on the opposite side. So anyway, sorry, that was probably a little flippant. Uh, and Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all of his strength and, uh, and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. So essentially he prays, the spirit of the, of the Lord descends on him one more time, and he's able to break apart these pillars and the whole place comes tumbling down. And it says, yeah, he kills. His greatest miracle was killing a thousand Philistines. Well, he kills 3,000 here. So it's pretty, it's, yeah, it's cool. So yeah. very, it's a, it's a sad end in a way, but it's also, I think a very, it's a very triumphant end, even though it ends in Samson's death, but we see this moment of redemption coming at the end, much like Boromir in Lord of the Rings. Uh, in verse 31, <laughs> then his brothers and all of his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah uh, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So there you go. In case you uh, missed that, he was buried between Zora and Eshtael. Eshtael. Oh, I forgot to say that. Thank you. Thank you. Ryan. I got you, bro. Uh, and then this last section I entitled, uh, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, and we'll see why. So <laughs> Samson is the last judge that we really hear about proper. Um, I believe we're told that Eli and Samuel judge Israel at different times. But as far as in the book of Judges, he is the last judge that we hear about. Um and the last few chapters, so this is chapter 17 through 21, they really just are all about the sheer depravity of the country at this point. Um, and again, this is one of the big sections as to why people would say, I mean, for sure this is written in the monarchical, uh, monarchical, during the monarchy is what I don't know what the word Deuteronomy. is. Like, yeah, Deuteronomy, you know, the, whatever it is. <laughs> This is written during the period of the kings because enough time has passed that they're clearly referring to all these as past events. So, but it also seems to be written as a point of reminding people like, hey, before the kings, this is what was going on. So chapter 17 tells the story of Micah, who hires a Levite to be his own personal priest for his family, uh, which is, you know, that is against the rules, also against the rules, the idols. Uh, so and I know idolatry and concubines, dude. These are the these are the sins. And so it shows the corruption of both men. Um, in chapter 18, the Levite is taken by the tribe of Dan. Okay, Dan, come on. Like Samson. Come on, Dan. You you get you you get the you get one of the cooler judges and then you go and you throw it away with this. Uh yeah, the tribe really goes downhill fast. And so it says this is in Judges 18. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish the to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. Um, in case you're wondering, Laish is part of Israel. This is not like some of the Canaanite people that they're supposed to be conquering. No, Dan's just, you know, being a real jerk here. Uh, and there was no deliverer because it was from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. And it was in that valley that belongs to Beth, Rehob, and there they rebuilt the city and lived with it, lived in it. And they named it Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor who was born in Israel but the name of the city was Laish at first. And so this is obviously a way of saying like, hey, you know that city Dan up north? This is what happened. Uh, and the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of son of Moses, and his son were the priests of the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity in the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. 
Oh, Dan. Dan, 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 Dan. <laughs> so they are, they're given land. Um, if memory serves me right, it's right north of Judah, which is in the south, uh, and it stretches to the sea. So they actually get, it's very small, but it's very good land. It, yeah. This is like, this This has the opportunity to be prosperous, um, but they, they fail to drive out the Philistines from all of their land. And so they move north. And uh, Laish is one of the northernmost cities in Israel. It's in the, uh, it's in the north of Ephraim. And so, yeah, if you look on your nice little map, it's in the middle of Israel and it's very up high. Um, and we're told this isn't going to come up in Judges, but we're told later in Kings, so we'll get to this eventually, that uh, there's that's basically like the worst spot in Israel as far as the, as far as the whole idol worship thing goes. It's really not a, a good deal. So, oh, I'm sorry. I misspoke. There, It's a, a city in North Naphtali, not in North Ephraim. So my bad listeners. God. I know. <clears throat> Deuteronomy. Uh, so yeah, like I, I put in the notes too, I'm sure that they faithfully worship Yahweh's there for, for generations. Uh, that's not how it goes. Um, chapter 19, and this is uh, this is not an exaggeration. This is truly one of the most disturbing stories in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the reason I try to remind people that don't things don't have to be expressly condemned to be seen as evil in scripture. Um, and because this story is the one that I read, and I can't remember how many years ago this was now, but I, I think it was in high school and I read it. And it, But there was no... Um, and God said that this was bad. And I was really disturbed by that. Yeah. I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever read. And so that's where I think it's important to realize that this story is clearly evil. And the writer of Judges is, is telling this story to say, look at this evil thing that happened. So it doesn't have to be expressly said within the story that it's evil in order for us to know that that's what happened. Yeah. And I think you got to remember some of the context too, where I mean, even go back to the, to the simple point, like the last chapters, I mean, go back to your point, like the last chapter of Judges show the level of depravity. Uh, that the people had descended into. And so I think there is, it's heartbreaking. It's disturbing. It's, uh, it's not something that I, I hope will ever be um, written or read in a, a passive, like, oh, that's not a big deal. Like, no, this, yeah. this is horrible. And, uh, but it, it's showing a level of depravity that exists when the, when the people rebel against God and do what they find right in their own eyes. Um and so I think it's really important um, to just understand contextually, like there's a whole lot of evil going on. Yep. And, and when we, I mean, we, when we read in Genesis, the, the, the story of Noah, when he's building an ark, but everybody else is evil. They're like, they're, they're sinful. They're doing their own things. Like there's a certain level of depth of depravity that we don't understand um, because contextually we're not there. Um, and just because scripture brings it up does not mean it validates it. So um, right. it, it's, but it is bringing to light. This is a byproduct of humanity doing what they find right in their own eyes. And, and we have to be very careful as Christians, especially in the world we live in today to, to be mindful and guarded against doing what we find right in our own eyes. Yep. So, so fair warning, uh, the next like five minutes or so are going to be some mature themes. So if you're listening with little kids, you might just mature themes. Yeah. You might little graphic. Yeah. You might want to skip ahead. Um, okay. So we meet kids are around. Yeah. Yeah. So we meet a Levite who has a concubine and we can call this strike one. So again, this is just kind of a common theme running through. Uh, she runs away and she goes back to, uh, her father's house and then they, Eventually he goes, he talks her back into leaving and they go and stay at a place called Gibeah. I'm kind of giving the spark notes here. There's more that happens in between. Uh, while staying at, at the house of a stranger, a bunch of men come from the city and they demand that the Levite come out so that they can, the scripture says, know him. Uh, essentially what that means is they, they want to, they want to rape him. They want to sodomize him. Uh, and so we'll call that strike two in this whole story. Um, and then this happens, which we can call just strike infinity. Um, but it says, and this is starting in chapter 23. 
Chapter 19, verse 23. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, And the man, the master of the house went out to them and said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here my my virgin daughter and his concubine, let me bring them out now, violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But but against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Um, So we're not going to skip past that. He is offering up his daughter and then the concubine of this Levite, who he just went and like brought back. Because essentially she ran away and his whole thing is like, no, 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 you're safe with me. He brings her back and then they're about to go just offered them to the crowd. Um, but the men would not re- listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and they abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go, go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer Then he put her on a donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. So there's still a little bit more that we're going to read. But what happens there is he, he grabs her by force, essentially opens up the door, tosses her out to this crowd, shuts the door and locks it. And then he goes to sleep. So this isn't even like, he's not particularly worried about what's going to happen to her because it says well, he, he expects her to be, yeah, he, I don't even think he expects her to be back. Yeah. Because even as he said, he could have to go on his way. It, to me, it implies that he he didn't even expect her to come back. Yeah, that could be. But I mean, still, it's it's yeah. It's and so yeah, and she's yeah. T- terrible things are done to her, and she dies. She she dies of of what of what happened. Um, and then it says he he takes her, he puts her on her on the donkey, and he goes home. And it says, and when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said such. A thing has never happened or has been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So he divides up her corpse into 12 pieces. He sends a piece to every part of Israel and essentially is talking about how this evil thing had been done, which in fairness, an evil thing had been really done, uh, but he was very much a part of it. Yeah, he was very much a participant in this thing. Um, yeah, so just, I mean, just a terrible story. Um, and chapters 20 through 21 kind of deal with the fallout of this. So there's a civil war between Benjamin, which, sorry, Benjamin is the tribe where this happened. And so the Gibeah is a city in, in Benjamin. Uh, and the rest of Israel, they, they go to war. All but 600 men from Benjamin are killed in this. So almost the entire tribe is wiped out in, in this war. Um, and it, again, this is not the men of Gibeah although I'm sure they're in that number of people, but the whole tribe of Benjamin is essentially, the matter is brought to them and the tribe refuses to lash out discipline on the city for what happened. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of starts the war. And then it ends in, it ends in almost the complete destruction of Benjamin, which I should, I should have written down, but it was talking about if this had actually been completed, it was listing off a few of the people who were descended from, from that tribe. But, But among them for sure are King Saul and Paul, the apostle, both of them are Benjamites. So just, yeah, just crazy. Um, and then it's after this conflict, we get the famous, um, the famous final words of Judges, which I think really just sum up the entirety of the book. And this is Judges 21, 25. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's just a really sad 
ending to the failure of the Israelites to do what Moses was begging them to do mm-hmm. in Numbers and Deuteronomy, um, where it's do the, the people of Israel are delivered out of Egypt and then they reject Yahweh. And it's, you know, please do not do this thing. Please do not reject God again. Teach your children, teach them the right way they should go. And we see Joshua's generation rise up or even, yeah, that, that generation after technically because Joshua and Caleb were actually part of the previous, previous generation. generation. Yeah. Uh, but that generation rises up and they do great things. And then immediately after that, it doesn't happen. And we keep seeing this cycle of great generations, but it doesn't last long. I believe the longest lasting period was 80 years of them actually serving Yahweh. If not, it's close to that, but they continuously fall back and it ends in just this absolutely sickening display of total depravity. A whole tribe is almost wiped off of the planet. It's just, it it, it shows the depths to which the nation had unfortunately fallen. And And it sets, it sets the stage for why the Kings arise but it also gives us very much a picture of what the story of the Kings is going to be. Because if you think a King is going to come in and fix things, that is not true. Uh, We're going to see good Kings or we're going to see bad Kings, just like we saw good generations and bad generations. And I think if anything, it, if anything, it actually seems like it gets worse (laughs) during the reign of the Kings. Cause you can count the good Kings. And we haven't done this in a while, actually like rank the Kings. We used to do that all the time. Uh, but you can count the good Kings on like on your hands. There, there's not, there's not very many of it's them. Um, there's a lot of bad Kings. So not to give it away listeners, but uh, it's, it's what we call a, a teaser of what's to come. I think that, I think the most important thing is uh, when it comes to a book like this, especially with the way it ends is to, is, is to put it in context, but at the same time, understand this shows the absolute depth of sin and the darkness, the evil that exists in our sinfulness. And, and when we turn away from God, there is a very real, a very real depth that exists um, in our depravity. And so we, we've got to be mindful of, of the world we live in. And as Christians, that's, that's what my hope is that it leads us to have hope. I mean, I'm reminded of even Luke, when I read this morning in my own devotionals at the day of recording, this was just this idea, like Jesus making the statement, like I've come for those who are sick, not those who, who are well. And the implication is he's speaking to Pharisees is you think you're righteous. You think you don't need a savior, but I've come for those who are aware of their sinfulness, who are aware of their need for a savior. And that that's the tension. The, the people of God didn't think they needed God as the ruler. And even like there was no king in Israel. Uh, it, it's an allusion to what's coming in the next chapters and uh, the next books of the Bible. Um, but it really, we have a king. His name, his name is Yahweh. We have, we have a, a righteous judge. His name is Christ. Like we have what we need to live in righteousness. Um, but it's, it's a tension that I think we all have to understand today where we take, dare I say it this way, the inspiration of the book of Judges and live in light of the gospel and the hope that we have. And mm-hmm. so I think that's that's the the value of, of a book like this, especially with the way it's ending. Because here's the thing, I remember reading the book of Judges and, and thinking the world, like, man, this is such a great book. They should make story, they should, mm-hmm. they should make videos of it. Um, but no, it ends, it ends horribly. And and I think that that's a big, a big thing we've got to take in, in, in humility, we've got to take in, in a sober mentality. Uh, and it's really important to get there, so. Well, one one of my favorite lines is, I believe it's attributed to Martin Luther, but it's essentially uh, 
but for the grace of God, there go I. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea behind it is we can look at these stories and be like, oh man, I would never do that. And it's like, <laughs> like the people of Israel, like they live in a different time. And so obviously there's different things going on. But I think a lot of times we think, we think way too highly of ourselves. Oh, so true. And we don't think about the fact that, no, we are capable of, we're humans. And because we're human, we are capable of extreme depravity. And it is by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, yep. that we are that we are not that. Yep. So, But that's that's that wraps up the book of Judges. Uh, and yep. before we go into the finish up the book of Ephesians, uh, I do want to st stop, stop for a moment and just uh, ask if you haven't already given us a five-star review with, the, with an actual written review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're listening on Spotify, which I think we found out or not found out, but we realized that our listenership in Spotify is growing. Uh, oh, I actually yeah. think it surpassed our, our Apple podcast. It's a little bit, a little bit more people listen on Spotify now. Just continue to give us those five-star reviews again, not for an ego stroke, but we just really care about growing and increasing the community that we get to read the Bible together and discuss it together. So would love for you to do that. Would love for you to write a review, leave a five-star rating. Uh, and we, we appreciate your continued partnership in that. Thanks for being part of the community. Uh, of Let's Read the Bible Together. Uh, this week, as I've already said, we are wrapping up the book of Ephesians. There's actually only two chapters that we're going to read this week. Um, and then we'll get into some Psalms here in a little bit. Um, but I just want to do, do a very quick reminder for us in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul's writing in two parts. The first part, which is chapters one through three. In essence, Paul is presenting the gospel. This is the truth that we are living and basing our lives on of who Christ was, the hope that we have in him. Uh, and so he does that in the first three chapters, as I discussed last week. And then he talks about how then we should live. Uh, and that's in chapters four through six, we, which we talked about chapter four last week. So we're just hitting five and six this week. Uh, and so we're going to find right out the gate in chapter five, verses one through 20. Paul is alluding to this new life that we get to live in love. Um, he, in essence, gives general instructions for what it looks like to live a holy life. Um, he focuses on purity, uh, pu the purity of life, not just purity in, in regards to sexual immorality or, or lust or those kind of, but it's purity in life in general. Uh, and he does this by two things, two ways. He says the first way is by avoiding evil deeds. And, this, and associations. And then the second is by adopting holy practices. And I want to say this very quickly uh, before I read verses 15 to 21, because I, I want to kind of emphasize this, this second half here in the transition verse in 21 to, to the second section. Um, but I, I remember growing up in church um, and one of the things that was really popular back in the the late nine, really the nineties and the early two thousands, was this idea of of what not to do as Christians, how not to live, how to avoid things, um, and that's a very Pauline thing. It's it, it, Paul is saying to live a holy life, you've got to avoid and you've got to disassociate with evil practices, evil deeds, ev evil situations, sinful situations. Another way to say that. Um, but the problem was, I think in the, in the nineties and early two thousands, we made it about what we avoided, not what we adopted, which is the holy practices piece. Right. And so, um, we, I want to be very careful today. Cause I think there is this, this tension of writing off my faith in Christ because of the legalism that existed. Um, but the legalism was not, was not bad. I don't think that at all. I think the legalism was intentional from Paul to say, Hey, avoid these things. Don't do these things. But in turn, replace them with holy practices. And that's where I think we've missed it. And so uh, I think we, we've we got to be in this journey of faith as I'm removing something to then impl implement something. Uh, and so that was, that's what he's addressing in chapter five, in light of the hope of the gospel, in light of the hope that Jesus has invited us to belong to God's family, uh, 
avoid evil deeds, avoid evil associations. Again, sinful is another way to say that. Sinful deeds and sinful associations um, and adopt holy practices. Uh, And then he says this in verse 15 to 21. It says, pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice how he doesn't say don't drink wine. He says don't get drunk with wine. I'm not here to argue whether you should be drinking or not. You need to be, uh, you need to grow in your maturity to understand what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do and convicting you of and live according to that standard. But he says, he, he implies that there's a very direct correlation between being drunk all the time and being filled with the Spirit. It's actually pretty remarkable to see that correlation a bit that they, they, they can go hand in hand where we replace the work and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives with being drunk and overwhelmed with, with wine or alcohol. Side note, allow me, thank you for letting me get my soapbox. But he continues on in verse 19. It says, speaking to one another in hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And I think it's important because as we continue to consider today, how do we live in light of this gospel, this hope, this truth that Jesus, he lived a sinless life. He He died on a cross to take your, your place and my place, held sin back from having a conquering power over us, and then invited and then rose again to defeat sin, to defeat death, and then inviting us to live in righteousness and right standing into belonging to God's family where we are free and delivered to live in light, to live with new eyes and understandings. How do we then continue to live in that manner? And I just appreciate how Paul says, pay careful attention, how you live, be wise about it, make the most of the time because the days are evil, which is this urgency that I think as Christians, we lost and coming out of COVID, there is this deep sense in, in, in the majority of Christianity of my hope is of returning to the urgency that exists because there is, there is a very real God. There's a very, very real eternity and there's very real hope that our world needs. Uh, and he's just challenging. Don't, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. It's not about your own comfort. It's about the gospel moving forward, about the kingdom advancing. Um, and, and I love that he alludes to, and he'll even hit this up and later in the, in the book of Ephesians about the need to being filled with the spirit, to live, to do what God has called us to do, to live how God is, is desiring us to do. It requires our understanding that we cannot do it on our own. Um, and we need the Holy Spirit's empowerment. Uh, we see this verse in 21, uh, submitting to one another in fear of Christ. This is a this is a hinge verse between this section and the second section, which is he then he shifts from this new life and love filter to now this submission to one another. And I'm going to be honest with you. We don't like the word submit today. It's true. We have a very negative connotation about submission. Um, but this is a biblical understanding of submitting to one another is, is to be like Christ. Christ submitted to God's will. Christ submitted uh, his life, his priorities, his passions, his dreams to fulfill. Actually, they were aligned with God's will and purpose for humanity, for the world as he knew it. So, so Jesus modeled for you and I what it means to submit uh, in grace and in truth. Um, and then he, and Paul alludes to uh, the the easiest way to understand submission is illustrating the various family relations regarding, and you see this in three three different dynamics that were applicable to its time, but also have some translation to today as well, um, to the idea of wives and husbands, uh, the, the mutual submission that must exist again. And I, and I, so I, as a pastor, Evan and I, we perform weddings, we officiate weddings. 
um, as you know, ministers of the gospel, we're empowered and and and, and, and you know told and, and enabled to do that with by being pastors and, and ministers of the gospel. But also in Washington State, which is where we live, we have the licensing and ability to do that too. Um, and and so this is a passage I often refer to during the ceremony uh, to talk about this idea of submission. And I say just exactly what I said. We don't like we have a negative connotation of what submission really means. And from a biblical perspective, it's understanding who Christ is and how Christ lived his life is the, is the source with which and why, with which we both how to submit and also understand why we submit. Uh, and it's out of fear for Christ, seeing how he lived his life. Uh, and so that there is that tension when it comes to husbands and wives, children and parents. This is something I wish if you're a teenager or younger listening and you're still living in your parents' house and you still have parental authorities, you're called to submit to your parents for their authority. Paul says this, he reiterates Old Testament truth, but reiterates it today. And then he makes this, I've always heard this as a kid. It's the first command with a promise. Actually, that's Pauline. <laughs> and I knew that, or I knew I've known that. But when I remember as a kid, I was like, oh, that's like, I didn't know that. It was like a preaching point. No, it's actually scripture. Hmm. Um, it's the first It's the first command with a promise because you'll have a long and prosperous life. And it was one translation says it, but you, it will go well for you. Uh, Submitting to your parents, submitting to authority is a, is a right practice, and it actually bodes well for the rest of your life um, when you understand that authority and the willingness to submit. Again, it's out of Christ. Christ modeled this. Um, and then servants and masters, again, this is no stamp of approval on, on, on slavery. Slavery was different in ancient times, so we got to understand that context because we read our modern understanding of slavery. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't God or Paul's approval of saying, hey, slavery is okay. It was spe- it was interjecting the gospel truth to modern day situations. How do you and I live in light of the gospel? If you are a slave, submit to your master. And it wasn't this your life is not your it's, your life is not your own to begin with because our life is now following the the life of Christ. We're aligning our life with Christ, um, and so he speaks to that what it means to submit. Um, God created order and authority. Um, and so that's why, that's where we have this idea of submission that we are called as Christians to adhere to. It's not one based upon supremacy and inferiority, which is the connotation we carry today. If I submit to you, it means you're better than me and, and our own egos and humanity don't like that, but that's not what it's about. Our uh, submission is a reflection of the gospel at work in me. And I'm going to submit to my authority. I'm going to submit my life, not just to Jesus, but to my my leaders, my bosses, my governing authorities, my wife. I mutually lay down my life for my wife. Um, and that's a picture of, of a gospel-centered life. It's it's a reflection. It's it's an outflow of that gospel that is transforming me inwardly. So um, so we talked about submission. This is how we then live in light of the gospel. Then he hits this passage, and, and it's very familiar for all, all of us. And this idea of the whole armor of God in chapter six, verses 10 to 20. Uh, this is like Paul's final conclusion and exhortations, um, which with instructions for all Christians. Um, and and he, the imagery he uses here is armor, but it's, it's, it's to understand the Christian life in the midst of spiritual warfare and the sustainability that we have to follow God and to stand firm in what God is calling us based upon the Lord's resources. Uh, and so I want to read the, these verses for a few minutes and offer a few thoughts as I read through it, um, because it's really important to understand um, what Paul is saying here. It's not just, hey, gear up for battle and start fighting, but there's a very, very methodical approach he has to this passage after bringing attention to um, the current situation of our of our spiritual 
realities. He says this in verse 10, it says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Um, and it's so it's so key and important to understand the onslaught that we face as Christians cannot be overcome in our own strength or abilities. And so Paul at the very beginning is reminding us the way that we're able to be strengthened is by the Lord. And I love this vast strength picture because it reminds us of the mightiness of God, the sovereignty, the omnipotence of who God is. And, and that was on display in Christ in his death and his resurrection specifically. Uh, and then he says this, because of God's strength, put on the forelong armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the enemy. In other words, hey, listen, you're going to go to battle and you can't do it on your own. And so adhere and understand and be strengthened by the Lord who it has, who is mighty and then put on his armor. And, and he says this, and the reason why, why do we have to put on the armor? He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in, in the heavens. For this reason, and again, it reiterates, put on the armor of God. There's a reason for this because we're fighting not a physical battle, but a very much spiritual battle. It's an eternal battle. Uh, and we can overcome because Christ has overcome and has invited us to belong. Uh, so then he talks about put on the armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the in the evil day and having prepared everything, take your stand. It's this picture of, uh, I'm really into like ancient history war movies, just in general, Ooh. I love them. Um, but it's when the, the I mean, I was watching Troy the other day with Brad Pitt as- Good, good one. Uh, <laughs> as Achilles. Um, but when they're going to battle, when you're, de- when you're standing, like they're standing firm, they're defending their, their territory. They're standing firm with their shields up and they're not moving, even though the other, the other army is ch- charging them. They stand firm. doesn't mean they're not anxious or whatever, but there's something significant about standing firm. Uh, and he, so he's saying the armor of God is meant to strengthen you because he is the source of strength and we're fighting against an onslaught. We're, we're not, we're not just passively hiding in a fortress. We're out. We should be out in the world as we know it and understand that the days are evil, understand that we are called to stand firm. Then he says that stand therefore with the truth like belt around your waist, with righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with, with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, and so he, he paints very clearly this, this is for the fight you and I are in as Christians. This is the armor that we put on. It's truth. It's righteousness. It's peace. It's faith. And it's the word of God, which is given to us as a sword. Now, here's the crazy thing I was reading about this. He says in verse 18, praying, pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. One of the things that was said in the ESV study Bible and I know my resource, not, I didn't read like 12 resources like Evan did. Um, but one of the three, things, three oh, sorry, resources. sorry. Uh, but he says prayer. Prayer is what is the most powerful and most important offensive weapon we have. And I remember as a kid thinking, oh, it's, just, it's the Bible. I've got to read the Bible. The Bible's my sword. ESV study Bible says prayer is actually the, the most potent offensive weapon that we have because prayer is a verbal conversation. It's an outward declaration of our mouths with the truth of God. The way that we wield the sword is not by reading it, but by praying and interceding in, in light of it. And so, which is why even last week, if you remember, I highlighted uh, one of the prayers of, of Paul in, in the book of Ephesians, uh, because there's something powerful about verbalizing truth and hope that we have, understanding and anchoring our lives back to it. And so for me, it was really cool to just remember 
remember, sorry for the mumble, uh, that prayer is the most important piece to our spiritual fight. If we are silent, if we pray in our heads, we're missing to a degree the power that is given to us as we stand firm by a mighty God who's able to save. Finally, he says this, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Um, I love that Paul doesn't pray and ask his 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 the, the the Ephesians to pray for deliverance. I asked that he pray. He asked them to pray for boldness that he could make clearly the mystery of the gospel. That that he would be able to do that with boldness so that all might come to save. He doesn't care about the situation. He cares about the message in the midst of the situation. Um, and so I, I love that piece to it too because he understands to a degree to a much greater degree than I think we do sometimes is the power and the need to understand that we're in a present circumstance, but God, God's will prevails no matter our circumstances. And so it's, it's our responsibility to be aware and able to under, to, to engage boldly uh, opportunities to present the gospel. And, and today, practically and tangibly, I think there's, there's very significant moments to that. Uh, and so Paul, Paul has this last exhortation. Um, and I think the, the brass tacks, the boil it all down to a very simple, overly simple statement is, is you and I are in a fight from the very moment we, from the very moment we're born because victory is already, is already achieved in Christ's death and resurrection. But the enemy has not sat back and we to live and be experiencing the freedom that God has given us requires us to stay engaged, not sit back passively. Um, and in order to do that, we have to understand that we can't overcome and we can't find victory. We can't find the truth of the hope, uh, practically speaking in our daily lives without the strength and the power of God who is omnipotent, all powerful. And so, uh, I love that Paul f- concludes the, the, the exhortations with this challenge. I think there's so much depth to this passage, but at the end of the day, like we're called to be good stewards of it. Uh, and then as we shift into six chapter six, verse 21 to 24, this is Paul's conclusion typical closing remarks. He offers a benediction. And then it's actually all also followed by the, the introduction of Tychicus, uh, which we see, f- I think, first in, introduced in a passing uh, name drop, if you will, in Acts 20. Uh, and he is probably the one that has carried the letter to, the, to Ephesus. Um, and so he introduces Tychicus, gives him a stamp of approval, uh, and, and as he's probably the one turning in uh, and maybe even delivering this letter to all of the churches in the region of Ephesus. Uh, and that's where Paul wraps up the, the book of Ephesians. You know, Tychicus, he's a, he's a good guy. I like that Tychicus, guy. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, we are, we're running up on time here a little bit, listeners. So we're just going to kind of go through the Psalms. Here's the thing I'll say with when, as we read these, um, I think they are perfectly emblematic of what the people of Israel, I shouldn't say perfectly, but they're very, very close as to what the people of Israel must have been feeling during the period of the judges. Um, So we're reading Judges 3 through 6. Judge 3 is a psalm of David crying out for Yahweh's deliverance during the rebellion of Absalom. Uh, And so I think it's, it's very reminiscent of the people of Israel crying out for God's deliverance from something that they have caused. So in Judges, they are rebelling against God. They cry out for his deliverance. In Absalom's rebellion, a lot of that is due to the failures of David as a father, um, to feel the failure of him to lead his own household. And so while he isn't the one causing the violence necessarily, he's also asking for God's deliverance for something that he was involved in. Uh, Psalm 4 is the people is, is asking God to deliver, to answer when he calls 
which I'd imagine is probably what Israel is doing around the time of Jephthah. So remember, at the time of Jephthah, that is when they cried out to Israel, save us. And then Yahweh says, well, ask the gods who you've been worshiping to save you instead. So I like Psalm 4 as kind of a a picture of what that could be. Psalm 5 asks Yahweh to leave David, to lead David in righteousness, which maybe, you know, maybe Israel could have... uh, could have stood to pray that a little bit more often. Uh, And then finally, Psalm 6 is really just about the idea of crying out for deliverance, which I think is a great theme in in all of Judges. And as we're going to see, it's a theme in most of the Old Testament where they're crying out for deliverance from, uh, most of the time, problems of their own making. But we get verses in there where it says, you know, be be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Later on it says, my eyes wastes away, waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. I am weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. So it's it's a very vulnerable psalm by David asking for the Lord's deliverance. And I think it's it's a good poetic picture of Israel asking for God's deliverance as well. Uh, finally, as our Q&A portion, we have a quick one this week, but it came in and it said, oh, esteemed, let's read the Bible, wise men. Thank you for using our proper <laughs> titles. Uh, in Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15, the commander of the army is Jesus, right? Joshua worships him, but isn't told to stop it. So remember in that section, it's this really interesting, it, it kind of just comes out of nowhere, but it's, it's before Jericho and Joshua is walking and he sees the, we're told the commander of the armies of the Lord. So it's not explicitly stated, but that seems to be a pretty safe inference. Um, we know that pre the pre-incarnate Christ appears a few times in the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is, so incarnate Christ is Jesus in the Gospels. So, But there are points where Jesus appears to people in the Old Testament. The most famous one would be uh, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, but mm-hmm. there's a few others. And then if you want to know the the fancy word, we call those Christophanies. So if you, you know, always be on the lookout for a good little Christophany in the Old <laughs> Testament. Uh, but the fact that the messenger is identified as the commander points to, at the very least, this is some kind of a very high ranking angel. Um, and the fact that, like you said, uh, that Joshua is not rebuked for worshiping. So he falls down and worships right there. This this seems to point to it being Christ, uh, to it being actually Yahweh um, revealing himself in that way and not just simply a, a messenger from the Lord. So yeah, short answer. Yeah, I'm, I I would land on it's Jesus. I'm not sure, Aaron, if you would agree. No, or I, th- I think so too. I mean, one of the one of the indicators too is if you continue to read, you know, past that where it says, verse 15, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. There's a significant connection to Moses and the burning bush true he from the vo- from the voice of the fire of the burning bush says hey Moses remove your feet um and so there is something to be sandals, said sandals not your feet sorry no, no <laughs> remove your feet Cut put, your, put your sandals on but remove your feet no I'm just kidding um thank you yeah uh but I do yeah I think the easy answer is I I, I do believe in this moment it is a Christophany for sure um and partially because he's not rebuked for worshiping because the angel of the Lord we see in the New Testament always says it's not me who you're worshiping stop right. um and the Old Testament connection point of remove your sandals um because where you're standing is holy is often indica- indicative of um uh, a divine being Jesus or God in that moment to, to do so. So the yep. proper response. There you be. Well, listeners, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find... We're not? We're not. You can, Aaron, you can find them on our website, grove.church. Brilliant. And beloved listener, 
if this pod, I don't know why I'm, I'm going to stop doing that voice. But it's because it, you didn't get to do the review portion. So uh, I love it, listener. That's so true. I jumped in and took, took it. Hey, it's all good. Uh, but yeah, if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a gift button in the upper right-hand corner. But hey, thank you all so much for listening. And have a great day.